Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. Culture, culture, culture. I think we've been talking a lot about corporate culture, company culture um, over the first few episodes. And I really wanted to explain why it's so important that you focus on culture change rather than looking purely at employee mental health. When we first started Aurora, well-being was a buzzword, right? And definitely after the pandemic, well-being, mental health, they became the new buzzwords, the new sexy. Everybody was doing it from footballers to your boss was talking about their mental well-being. But what we find as practitioners in this space is that there wasn't always any real impetus behind it, though. Just a recognition that we needed to do something, anything. And we were asked to deliver a lot of one-off pieces of work in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, lots of workshops or very short programs. And as I've said before, the issues with those kinds of one-off tactical solutions is that it's like trying to put a fire out with a bucket with a great big hole in it. Mental well-being isn't a quick fix. If it could be solved in a 90-minute webinar or a talk, then we wouldn't be seeing the appalling stats that we're seeing now. Solving the mental health crisis is going to require much more than just EAPs, MHFAs, and training workshops. It's about psychological safety. We say it time and time again. It's a question of trust. In other words, does your company culture make people feel safe to believe that you mean what you say when you say you care about them? Too many companies say that people are their greatest asset whilst they've spent the last decade overworked, underpaid and undervalued. Employees are much savvier now and far less willing to put up with it. The quiet quitting that is uh, another trendy buzzword. It's not just a symptom of post-pandemic burnout. It's as a result of people questioning their priorities and re-evaluating the personal pros and cons of their job. Two-thirds of us now reflect on the work that we do, and 83% of employees say that finding meaning in day-to-day work is a top priority for them. 69% said that they change jobs for something more fulfilling. So in this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, we're going to take a look at why culture counts in the Wellbeing Rebellion. I think the first place to start is with a good definition of or a good understanding of what organizational culture actually is. Because now culture is the new buzzword, right? Organizational culture, really, it defines the environment for everything that happens within a company. It's both the explicit and implicit, the spoken and unspoken behaviors and mindsets 
that define how your business functions and operates on a daily basis. In other words, what is it really like for employees to work in your business? So this is more than just what you've you've put out in your carefully crafted mission and objectives and value statements. It's what the leadership and employees demonstrate in their behaviors. So it's not just what we ideally want our company to stand for, but what is actually happening on the ground. When we talk about culture generally in society, when we talk about it um, in, in terms of the workplace, a lot of people focus on things like perks and policies. So um, our company culture is really lax because our dress code lets us wear jeans every day or we get football tables um, in our break rooms. I'm allowed to work from home, all that kind of stuff. That's what we think about when we talk about culture, but that's not actually the culture. These are cultural clues, indications of what the culture actually is. Instead, it's better for us to describe culture in terms of what the collective values, norms, beliefs of the organization are. In other words, how we do things around here. You need to think about things like do your employees feel valued? Do people tell the truth to each other? Do they give honest feedback? Do they speak the truth to the leadership? A strong culture can provide consistency and direction. It guides decisions and actions. It fuels the workforce and helps them to reach their potential. So company culture is one of the most influential factors in determining whether a business is successful or not. because it enables the strategy. Your company culture has to, must absolutely, therefore, align with and support your well-being strategy. Otherwise, your strategy is going to fail. So I'll give you an example. Um, I've told you guys about my background. I wasn't always um, a business owner. I used to work in corporate. I worked for the world's largest oil company. And it was one that had a very pervasive safety culture. There was in the 1980s, and I am showing my age, there was a terrible incident with an oil tanker that spilled and it caused lasting damage environmentally. And as a result of that, the company did its investigations and found that the safety culture was lax. And so they spent the next decades investing in, emphasizing in, training on their safety culture. We used to have to go to safety briefings on absolutely everything, <laughs> absolutely everything from um, the height of the chair and the kind of chair you use to how you drove. Really? Yeah how you drove, to what kind of transport you use, to which hotels you stayed in. Everything was, and this was actually the strap line use, safety first. I remember there was an expression that, that we, the, the Safety Health and Environment Committee would use, which was accidents don't just happen. And it's true. All accidents are preventable. So there was such a, a focus on empowering each employee to take responsibility for their own safety and the safety of others, right? But here's the catch. That was just only about physical health and safety. 
in this organization, which had spent billions of pounds over the years on upskilling everybody to be safety conscious, they had totally neglected mental health and safety. And I'm saying health and safety because it is a, a question yeah. of safety now. Yeah. So in this organization, I managed to burn out work-related stress, anxiety, and depression. So even though safety culture was pervasive, it wasn't complete, right? So the well-being strategy did not align with the corporate culture. The strategy was non-existent, frankly, mm -hmm. <laughs> but let's say the strategy was <laughs> lax. Yeah. Yeah. And, and bear that in comparison, I guess, with the organization that I work for, it was non-profit, but it was also sort of um, social justice, um, health, um, safety, because we work with people who were struggling with um, addictions and stuff like that. So we're healthcare related. So that meant that the culture for us in terms of employees who were struggling with mental health was priority. So we could, uh, a nurse or a psychologist or um, a recovery uh, practitioner who wasn't coping well with things at, at home or even indeed at work wasn't going to help their patient or their client um, move forward because that would affect the conversation, the relationship with those patients. So it's very important. So our culture was mental health. We didn't say have a strap line and say mental health first, but that kind of what it was actually. <laughs> The people who are delivering a service to the end user have to be well enough to deliver it. And it's not to say that there weren't people who were burnt out and stuff like that. It just meant that we expected that that would take a toll. You know, at one point, people were seeing like 100 patients. At one point, it, it wasn't safe for us to do that. And they knew it wasn't safe. And that was that whole idea of trying to negotiate with local authorities that it's not safe in our staff. If they go off sick, then they're going to go off sick. But it wasn't punitive. I didn't feel like if you went off sick, then people look at you funny, like, how dare you go off sick? Because it was, it was important to us. It was priority to us. So that's not to say that it's a com perfect company because everybody has a thing, but in relating to mental health, it was a thing. Also, even relating to empathetic leadership, it, it's what our leaders in that organization sort of, just how they presented themselves, caring, because again, we were in a caring profession, so it made sense that that would be. So it, I remember having to meet with uh, an old boss of mine, you know, obviously since the whole empathetic leaders and, you know, the kind of leadership we want right now had been sort of out in, in, the, in the media and everything. And I remember talking to one of them saying, You've been doing this type of leadership for years and now they're catching on. And he was like, I know. <laughs> so I was like, at the time, it was almost like you're too soft. And, you know, outside mm -hmm. of the industry, yeah, definitely, it was soft and allowing it. Like, well, that's how I'm going to get people whose job is to reach out to the emotions of their patients to also do the same. So, yeah. So that's, what, that's how that was different in, my, in the culture and the organization that I, uh, I worked at. And then there's the very public examples of toxic cultures. So I think of Twitter. Yeah. Right? There's been a massive culture shift in Twitter that has made a lot of us observers a little bit nervous, edgy, when we think of the brand. 
and that's just since Musk took over in uh, October 22. So from reports, employees have, were, have found themselves sleeping at the office to massive, abrupt redundancies. And the toxicity at Twitter, it started with an ultimatum from Musk asking employees to commit to extremely hardcore work or leave. And it has continued ever since. That's a culture which has seen a dramatic negative change. And it's not really surprising if anybody had followed Elon Musk and his career trajectory and what his reputation was like at Tesla, they'd have known that this is an organization, Tesla, has been mired in workplace controversy for years. So even June 22, another lawsuit came out against Elon Musk for fostering a toxic work environment in which discrimination and harassment are commonplace. So that's an example of an environment or culture that has been fostered by the company figurehead the CEO, and he's taken that culture with him to his new organization, which wasn't previously um, aligned with that kind of uh, behavior. So, yeah, it's it's so important that your culture, your strategy for well-being, how you treat your people is aligned. Yeah. I would say one of, I'm going to add to this as well. If you have a culture like this, you know, this Twitter culture, all it, all it would do is like anything else, it would drive away the people who can't align with this culture and attract the people who can. So this is what happened when you say, oh, I'm sure people might change things. No, once you've created it, then you're going to attract the people who like that kind of attitude, who mm. like that kind of way of being, who like the backstabbing. They just want, like, they would you just attract them as workers. And how productive they'd be down the line, I don't know, but it'd be interesting to see what happens to them. So um, I'm just pretty curious. I'm just what this space, what I'm saying. So, I mean, in um, 2022, um, MIT did a, a study on toxic work culture. Um, and of course, it turned out that that was the number one reason people left their jobs. So how do you know if your company culture is toxic? I mean, it, it, you don't have to be extreme like Twitter, like with the example we've used, but there are subtle signs like that. So like your, your bowel movement after a dodgy curry, a poor workplace culture will eventually spill out and become evident. Everybody's going to know. Okay? <laughs> There's no way to hide that shit. <laughs> Literally. So there are several signs of toxic workplace. So we're going to unpack a few of them. One, low morale. Now, this isn't just the typical Monday morning blues after a long Sunday or weekend heavy session of drinking or something like that, but rather a chronic company-wide lack of enthusiasm. It's the, um, ah, what is the word I'm looking for now? Malaise. It's just, hmm. Studies showing that that kind of negativity is contagious and that a negative environment can cause high performance to leave an organization at the rate of 13 times higher than other employees. High performers, and I think actually Patty McCord, so she was formerly talent development director or some kind of role for Netflix, and she had written a book 
um, called Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And one of the key things that she found and they talked about is that high performers want to work with other high performers. We really want to work with people who are on our level and they can get the work done and they don't want to carry other people's water. You know, they just want to. So if your culture gets toxic, those high performers will leave and you can see how they'll leave at the rate 13 times. Then other employees who are probably not performing for whatever reason and they'll just stay. So that brings the whole productivity down. So that's one. The second thing is lack of clarity. Toxic workplaces can demonstrate a lack of clarity regarding the roles, the responsibility, chain of command, hierarchy, whether it's flat, not flat. You know, it's just that we don't know what the work we are or we used to, but now we don't. And it might be because of poor communication, power struggles, you know, new CEO in the role or, or whatever it is, just dysfunctional management. You know, one left hand doesn't talk to the right hand type of thing. The result of the workforce that doesn't know what they're supposed to to be, what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to do it, who they need to turn to for help. So just constant chaos, right? And then there's the interpersonal drama. So because you know, unhappy people, you just breathe it all in. We bitch and moan. <laughs> in, indeed. The gossip, the clicks, the passive aggression, workplace bullying, all under this drama umbrella because people aren't happy. This certainly isn't limited to non-leadership employees either. You got the power struggle among the higher-ups, right? Their respective supporters, you know, who it just sounds like a, a drama. And I feel like there must be a TV series where this is happening, but I can't think of one right now, where they just interdepartmental drama in many toxic organizations. So, fear of failure. Fearful employees have worse health outcomes and will have poor job performance compared to employees who feel secure. It makes perfect sense, isn't it? Can't do worrying about your job, how you're going to perform in it. You're just scared. So the department is not giving you all um, because you can't be creative while you're worrying or stressed out about something. A workplace is toxic when an employee believes or knows that they will be penalized for failure. Mm. In other words, it's not a culture of... If, Failure is good for all of us, you know, that we learn from it. If it's a case of saying if someone fails, they're out the door or they're single, singled out as an example of how not to fail, mm. <laughs> then, of course, this is going to add to that um, fear. It's the opposite of what we're teaching our children in schools now, which is the growth mindset. That yes. fear of failure stops you from taking the risks that are needed to be creative, innovative, and ultimately productive. Um, and it tends to be that we then resort to box ticking and rule following. And now what we're saying is mistakes are okay if they are for a purpose. So it's that fail fast, fail forward approach. But if if you're not even allowed to make any mistakes at all without being afraid of being mocked, or sanctioned for it, then it's likely you're not going to go the extra mile. Um, and then finally, when you think about high employee turnover, and who can blame them? A toxic work environment is bad for an employee health, so they leave. So in 2019, um, the 
Society for Human Resource Management, SRM, and I think that for UK people is the equivalent of, of uh, CIPD in the US. Um, and they commissioned a report on toxic workplaces that showed that one in five people had left their job in the previous five years due to poor workplace culture. That's yeah. 20%. Um, yeah, so culture does count. And we've seen it firsthand. We've seen how a team with a toxic culture, even if that's only caused by one or two rogue employees or managers, they will underperform. So we were brought in to help with one client where that was exactly the issue. Unfortunately, it resulted in a really uh, tragic situation. So. It was a team where there was low morale, interpersonal drama, all that lack of clarity, nobody knowing exactly who to turn to for help. What ended up happening was a, a vulnerable employee ended up being extorted and bullied by someone else in the team, a peer in the team. And as a result, that employee attempted suicide, not once, but twice, right? And when further investigations were done, it transpired that that employee had indeed notified their manager who had dismissed it as just idle talk. Yeah, he didn't take it seriously. Um, and he didn't take it seriously because he didn't realise it was serious. Um, he didn't have the skills or well were told to be able to ask the right question that would have allowed him to, to understand the extent of this bullying. So, you know, we, we don't want to, we're not trying to throw shade, but it's that whole idea of even within a team. So a team can be toxic and then that could spread across, but this team were managing differently. They they were put under a lot of pressure mm. um, and it was during the pandemic. So they were, they had to do a lot of the heavy lifting, literally. Um, and I think for them, that's probably what caused them of the low morale. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, people they were still in isolation, you know, we were still in lockdown, but they had to still get to work. And I think imagine the kind of pressure that that whole team was experiencing. And so when this incident happened, they, they didn't see it coming. Luckily, he didn't um, complete that, you know, so he he is doing much better and stuff like that. And they... I think what I, I found very impressive about this team is how they rallied um, or the leaders rallied to ensure that they had the right training because I think they realized that we, A, we didn't know this was our job now and B, we didn't know, we just thought, oh, just come talk to me if you need any help was enough. But actually what we saw was that this, this guy couldn't go to his boss for proper help. He just probably mentioned it on the off chance or in person. So it wasn't like, hey, I need to talk to you about this big problem I'm having because sometimes people they, they didn't feel safe to do so. And that's what we we know about that. So it was a very significant and traumatic experience for the whole team. Mm. Um and of course distressing for the wider organization who, you know, can imagine how they felt, like what's happening in that department. So we it, when we talk about toxic culture, we don't want you to just think about your whole organization on a whole, right? Because sometimes it's too large for you to see end to end, but there might be specific or specific certain departments that are particularly at risk or they're struggling. And the idea is not to ignore that. It will eventually spill out um, into others. 
So that's what I wanted to share or at least comment on here now. How do you fix a toxic culture? I know it's not easy and it, it, I, I know we've laid a lot of the bad doom and gloom news on you about the consequences of ignoring this. I mean, in that ins- instance, it, it led to almost death and that is an outcome everybody wants to avoid. But it is possible to turn it around and that team did. It did. You just need to have a plan and some help. And one of the biggest ways to prevent toxic culture is by being intentional about increasing employee input into building a healthy culture. If you don't ask, you won't know, right? So hearing from your employees is the critical starting point as it allows you to identify what you need to prioritize. That's why discovery is the first pillar in our 360 well-being framework. It is also one of the least understood because everybody thinks that they're doing this bit well yeah. already. Everybody does employee engagement surveys each year and everybody has reams and reams of data. So they think that they're asking, but what they're not getting is information, right? They're getting data and not enough information. It's, it, the dangers are you end up doing your employee listening or asking exercises sporadically or infrequently. So you use surveys rarely, like once a year, or, or, or you ask leading questions. So you're not getting information. You're just getting data. Another issue is that people don't quite trust who is reading this information. Why does HR want to know? So if they don't trust you, they don't trust their management, it's going to lead to lower response rates so that that information, that data can't really be accurately extrapolated to represent the whole of the organization. Sometimes you have an issue with a lack of any granularity. So you can't really dig down to identify any specific problem areas so that you can troubleshoot. And one of the other issues that we see is that respondents get fed up because they get little to no feedback on what has been done with the information collected. I come from an oil and gas background, right? Data analysis is in my blood now. It's um, part of how we, we know that we're making sound investments and things like that. And so I know that there's data and there's information and not all data is quality information. How, when, and who you ask is all critical, as is what you do with the results. It's absolutely important that you get your employee listening exercises right. Is it simple? Is it easy? Is it anonymous? Is the feedback both qualitative and quantitative? Is it regular? Who sees the results and what do they do with the information? Do you get back to participants to let them know what you did with the data in a, you said, we did type way? Those are all really important questions to consider before you take your, your survey or your a pulse to your employee population. 
The benefits of having a healthy and positive culture are clear and they extend beyond growth and profit. Understanding your culture and building it intentionally so that it aligns with your positive strategy is going to let you socialize new employees properly, align employee and leadership behaviors with the culture, engage employees and improve satisfaction with customers, ensure the company's well positioned to meet its future business objectives. What do you think, Obes? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work out how um, examples of this, because I think a lot of organizations, when they do get it right, how many times we know they're getting right? I know we talk about things like in conference to get mentioned and so on and so forth. So I'd like to think about cultures or organizations that have gotten it right. So actually, if you're looking out there and you feel like you're part of an organization that have gotten the culture right, let us know. That would be interesting to be able to learn more about how they've done it. Mm. One of the ones that I always think about is Netflix. I mentioned earlier with um, Patty McCord, who was, I believe her role was chief talent officer uh, for Netflix at the time, and she had written this book about that culture. Um, and the best, one of the key things I took from it was the fact about treating people as adults. Um, and so you have to go with the intention that they would do what's required, that they would do, if you create a culture of adulthood, <laughs> create a culture of trust, then people will get on with what they need to do. And one of the key things was getting people to pick their own annual leave. I remember thinking, wait, what? <laughs> so they pick their annual leave. And what do you mean pick their own annual leave? They can decide when they're going to have go off um, on leave. They didn't have to necessarily tell any manager or anything like that. Okay. Um, they were trusted to organize themselves that when they went on leave, it wasn't like a Could they pick deal. how many days they went on leave? I can't know about how many days, but it could take six days. Someone can go, I've got to go and watch my kids' football game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's. treating people like grown ups. Exactly. But it was so refreshing. I thought that was fascinating. Um, that. And, and also, what was the other key thing again that I was trying to remember? The bit around. Um, the appraisal. I mean, I've, I'm sure since then a lot of companies have stopped doing one to year appraisal, but that was. I don't they know. I think quite that. a lot of people are still, still doing do an annual. Yeah, so they stopped review. the one year appraisal thing. So they started doing it a bit more regularly, so quarterly. Um, and I thought that was a helpful way of getting people to. If there's an issue, you know ahead of time, not in the end of the year. And then somebody now knows that they haven't been performing to the best as expected. There's not much they can do to turn it around kind of thing. So there was some level about treating people as an adult and managing, even when it comes to letting, you know, layoffs or redundancy, being able to feel like nobody should be surprised by that. They need to be able to just, if something's coming, this person knows, their manager had conversations about it before they let go. So there's just the whole idea of treating people with dignity and respect. Um, so, yeah, that was one example that came to mind um and another example one of the supermarkets in uk i can't name them but they during the whole black Lives matter thing happening um they invested heavily in a uh, support program for their ethnically diverse colleagues um and i thought it was amazing um it's just a shame that they're not sharing that, that publicly that that's what they're doing so i do know that there might be a lot of organizations that are really doing good work to change culture, to improve the culture, to make their culture p- powerful, but are next are not necessarily sharing that. If you know of any, let's know. 
Um, and then finally, though, the Ben and Jerry one. And God, you found out this one. The Ben and yeah. Jerry. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a Harkin Dars girl, I didn't. Yeah. In fact, I'll be completely honest, since lockdown, I am a do-it-yourself, homemade ice cream kind of girl. I love it. You can put whatever mixings and flavorings you want. But Ben and Jerry's has always been known as a socialist, ethical brand, right? And when it was founded, as well as wanting to make excellent ice cream, Ben and Jerry were really focused on building a company that gave back to both its community and its stakeholders. So their first major, they were the first major corporation to allow an independent social audit of its business ops. And that was back in 1989. And that's long before everybody else jumped on board and they were found to be excellent. Uh, so it's not a surprise that that company is known for its specific corporate culture. And actually, that's a really good way of defining culture is we culture almost, when you look at it externally, it's, it's reflected as a kind of personality. You know what Ben and Jerry's feels like to work in just from the, the tone of the adverts, from the names of the products it sells. That's all reflections um, or cultural clues, isn't it? And so you know it's a kind of hip, um, uh, like I said, it's a hippie, socialist, kind of political activist type place to work. And it will attract those kinds of people. Yeah. And I think um, on, a, on a note there is, in this day and age, we're going into um, some cases a recession, others not quite a recession and all of that stuff. We're going to need people to work, be productive. We're going to need them to to help get out of it, right? Get back on the straight and narrow, get back on, on being producing and earning again. Um, in a, in a, an environment where we cannot afford to just throw salary, the money at them, um, right? Because they're in very much. So how are you going to attract people if you can't attract them with money anymore? You're going to have to attract them with the culture in which you have built and created that they feel safe in, can thrive in, knowing that you got their backs and then they're willing to work hard and encourage and attract other high performers and hardworking people mm. to come along into your organization. So frankly, it's the only choice there is right now. Um, and that's my thought process around that. As the great resignation continues, it's not a surprise that employees are hunting for new opportunities and healthier work environments. So if you truly listen to what your staff want, you stand a greater chance of giving them what they actually need. Employers must take an honest look at their culture and whether it truly reflects their stated values and objectives and then act decisively to make work work for everybody. After all, if a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower, right? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. 
Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.